Hello and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you no matter where you are in your journey towards Jesus. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. So glad to be with you this morning. Uh, Let me explain. I'm not injured. This is my walking stick, but it's not an injury, and I don't have, uh, um, you know, haven't had a reason to use it today. I'm doing just fine. It's a prop for me this morning. And here's why. Um, This is a, I mean, it's a walking stick. I suppose if you were a truck driver, this would be your, your uh, tire checker. Um, this is, is also a weapon. Um, you could defensively use it. You could offensively use it. Yesterday, the men that were here heard a gentleman speak. His name was Wit. He gave us a powerful word picture. I, there's not a single woman that I know of or wife that wouldn't have wanted to have her husband hear what he said on Saturday. He was talking about men who are in the Word, uh, who are able to, to understand and know what God's Word is and what His will is, and then also talked about um, how that as men um, we have opportunities to, to take our stand. And he, he, he used a word picture. He said, there's not a single woman that if, if you know, an enemy was coming in, and you were laying in bed in the middle of the night that you'd want your husband to, you know, to, to, to lay down and be asleep between you and the enemy. You'd want your, you'd want your husband, you'd want that man, you want a man to defend uh, who you are. And when, I, when I, I, was taking that, I was taking that in, and, I, and I, it brought this to mind. It's a, this idea that men have an opportunity to take our stand. The, the devil is is coming at us. He's fighting us, but strong men know God's Word, and they know His will, and they can take their stand, and they can defend um, their family. And that was just a, it was a powerful message for, for those men that were here. It was, it was a good breakfast, but it was a powerful message, and that word picture uh, so impressed me. And as I thought of that, I just, I wanted to recount that moment for all of you, but... Um, this morning, this is my way to illustrate that, that there are times when you have to take a defensive posture, there's times you have to take an offensive posture against the ways of Satan, the things that he's doing. So grateful to be a part of a church that is investing in men, men who um, are warriors. We're in a battle. We're in a battle for our life. And so grateful that uh, there are men who are willing to be Warriors, and I'm going to ask one of our safety team here to take this from me before I hurt myself, because I'll get carried away with that. Thank you, sir. One other thing I want to remind you of this morning is we have 58, uh, I believe, 58 students at Big Chill this morning. This is their uh, last morning. They uh, left left over the weekend, and they're, they'll be back uh, later today. But we have. Um, those students in Big Chill, we're praying that God is, is, is speaking to them. We always have good stories, the things that God has been doing. So I'll just pray for them in their last uh, hours of that. Also, next week, we have the privilege of having Dr. Barb Belfi with us. She is the president of Bethel University. And over the last time, bit of time here, we've, uh, we have a relationship of working together on boards and committees um, in, in our tribe, and, and it's Bethel University Day, and she's going to be here, and I want you to help me welcome her next week uh, when, when she is here. A couple of things that I wanted to share with you um, yet, and we want to pray uh, for some missionaries, um, Jonathan and Megan Steen, who are leaving, but they're headed back to, to Kenya. But I wanted you to hear this last report that I got from Keziah Triggs. Remember, I introduced a young lady to you from our congregation several weeks ago. She grew up in Buchanan. Uh, she, her, she, her family was a part of um, 
the Jehovah's Witness um, religion. She uh, became a Christian. She attended here, became a Christian. She was baptized here. And God was calling her to, to missions work. She left uh, a few weeks ago. She is in training with YWAM. It's Youth with a Mission. And just this last report from her, I wanted to share it with you because it, it, it touched my heart. She said, our God is the only God that deserves all glory and honor. I'm thankful to be with people um, who are willing to get to know Jesus deeper and want to preach the gospel among the nations and also be willing to die for him. Thank you for your prayers during this time. And here are a couple updates. And I, I want you to, you, know, you to remember her in prayer, but listen to this. Since arriving here, I've been blessed. Uh, there are a handful of Americans on staff uh, at the base where they're located. Um, and, um, and yet there's been most of the people that, in fact, the people she's living with don't speak English, but she's also able to help them with their English, and she's excited about that. Classes have been uh, about the importance of hearing God's voice, uh, intercessory prayer. I've been learning about what it, what it means to have a broken heart, that Jesus is breaking down barriers, walls uh, of selfish desires, ignorance, pride, disobedience, spiritual passivity, all that. Proper fear of the Lord. Those are things that she's, she's um, studying again with, with that group of people. But a main convicting question since arriving, I need to be broken of selfish desires and the things that I'm denying of the Lord in order to fully submit to his will for my life. She already picked up and left. And she's asking God to break her again um, of selfish desire. Several things that she mentioned, last but not least. I realize that Jesus has died for me. Am I truly ready to die for Jesus? My answer is yes. I know that a missionary life consists, I know what a missionary life consists of. I've been weighing the cost for a while. I'm fully prepared to be persecuted and tortured if that's what it takes to be a disciple preaching the gospel. I have an obligation. Jesus tells us the end will not come until all tribes and tongues know his name. I'm it's plain in the scripture, and I'm very ready and willing to go through anything in order to fulfill my part in this task. She is going to be headed, she's training to be going, uh, to, to be going as a missionary to parts of the world that are not favorable and not fond of the Christian message. She's putting her life um, in harm's way. And I want to ask you if you would just please again uh, be faithful for Keziah. She was one of us, grew up in our community, sat in our church pews right where you were. Was were she was baptized here. She started down that road of faith, and God is transforming her life, and, and that's this call on her life now. Would you, would you agree to pray with her and pray for her again in these days? Um, that's just a challenge I have for you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask if Jonathan and Megan would join me again this morning. We want to pray for them. Uh, John and Meg Steen um, are friends. For some, they're doctor. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ, part of our church. And they have been here. They shared uh, several weeks ago about the ministry they've been a part of. I've been serving in our community. Uh, the time has come for them to return back to Kenya. And so after having been here for a few weeks, uh, the days are coming. Uh, is it yet this week? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's this week. Um, they'll be headed back to Kenya to Tenwick Hospital to serve there along with their family. Um, their son, Joe, is uh, with, this, I think, the students this week. So I had to wait till he could... Yeah, don't, yeah. Stay safe, get home safe. And um, so then they're, they're leaving uh, tomorrow. So uh, we want to pray for them. Um, we love you. We believe in you. Um, you. You are our arms and our feet. We commit to pray for you again and again. When you need something, call us. Um, 
you're doing what we can't do, and we're going to try and do, help you when there's things you can't do and we can do. So what I want, to, I want you to do as a congregation, I'm going to invite you all to stand. And I want um, as many of you that will, all of you if you want to, just simply to, to circle around John and Meg. So I want you to just come on up here. We're going to pray for them. So just the body coming around them. So just uh, join, and we're going to take a moment, a family moment here in prayer um, together, praying for Jonathan and Megan. I'll give you a minute to get here. It is amazing to me how God is calling people from our church to serve in significant ways. I love that about us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that today we have the privilege of joining our hearts together, our prayers together for John and Meg and their family. You have blessed them. You have called them. You are using them, Lord, in significant ways, powerful ways, ways that you've called them to. Lord, we trust them into your care. We know, Lord, that a God who has called is the one who is faithful to provide what, it is, what is needed. You are a God of protection and providence. Lord, I pray that you would go before them and that travels back would be um, safe and um, when, when, they, when they get back to uh, Kenya, to Tenwick Hospital, that they would be able to quickly um, make those adjustments and that you would use them there. Lord, thank you for some uh, change of pace. Um, they've continued to work and serve, but some change of pace and some, some rest and some renewal. Thank you, Lord, for their entire family. Watch over these children who are growing as they, as they make transitions back. Would you watch over them? Lord, as they put themselves in a place where you can use them in the medical field and they're touching the bodies of these Kenyans and they're ministering spiritual, uh, physical help to them, Lord, you also are using them to minister spiritual help. And so, God, I pray that you would give them much fruit for their labor, that there would be much joy in their souls. God, remind us often, uh, wake us in the middle of the night um, throughout the day to pray for Jonathan and Meg, and we thank you for the privilege that we have to help hold their arms up in prayer and to bless them. And so watch over them, we pray. We send them, Lord, with anticipation and excitement. There's some sadness in our heart too but we trust them in your care, and so bless them in the strong name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. 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 God bless you. How about the Steens, folks? As far as I'm concerned, we have a pretty cool church. No, building's not much, just a box. Um, I don't know, but the people. Got good people. I've had a chance to, uh, I'll, I'll talk more about it later, I'm, I suppose. Had a chance to rub shoulders with some other pastors from around the country and um, talk about their people and their church. And um, there are pastors that are hurting, pastors that don't have friends, don't have friends in the church. Um, I don't know what that's like. I have friends in the church. Uh, people who have ornery people. I'll put my people against anybody's people. You're good. You're good people. And uh, I'm, great, I'm grateful for you. Take your Bibles, open them up. Uh, James chapter 5 is our text for this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, 
you won't believe what James tells us today, so you better get a Bible somewhere around you and read this with me because this is something. I will tell you this, while you're finding James 5, verse 1, we've been privileged to sit at the banquet table of God's Word, feasting, I say feasting, challenged, inspired to know and do God's Word. Tom and Virgil and Chuck uh, did all of that for the glory of God and for the good of the people these past three weeks. We're blessed to have people who can proclaim God's Word. Different voices, different delivery, same message, God's Word. And uh, I am so grateful for that. In our run through James so far, the author, half-brother of our Lord, has been talking about the development of faith. The development of faith and literally the response of faith to the tests that we face. Then he turns his attention to the works of faith. That is, the reality of faith. The outward demonstration of the inner faith. Faith without works, um, he says, is, is dead. Dead faith is worse than no faith. Verbal faith is not, is, is, is not enough. Mental faith is insufficient. Instead, faith that moves into action. Faith must inspire action. In fact, a faith that produces no change is, is, is not saving faith. Paul says in Romans 4, um, he uses the example of, of Abraham. He shows the justification is by faith and not by works. And then James comes along in James chapter 2, verse 21, and he says, Abraham was justified by works. And so there's this, this apparent contradiction between Romans 4 and James 2, but literally it's two sides of the same coin. Paul writes about justification before God, and James writes about the evidence of our faith being justified before men. People can see it. It's, it's, it's been active. Um, it, it's, it's being lived out. And so James in this epistle is integrating true faith with everyday practical experience. How that faith endures trials. How that faith obeys God's word. How that faith produces acts of service. Faith that harbors no prejudice. It's a faith that helps us control our tongue. It's a faith that helps us act wisely. It's a faith that gives us power to resist the devil. It's a faith that waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. It's faith that is an everyday practical experience. Next week, we're actually going to talk. We, we turn the corner um, here in, in chapter 5 and verse 7. We turn the corner where James talks about the power of faith and the reassurance of faith. That's next week. Now, James is writing, and literally, this is kind of a terse, um, moralistic, authoritative style message, influenced, I'm sure, by his Jewish heritage his acquaintance with Old Testament literature, and he shifts from topic to topic, and, and now he abruptly makes another shift here in chapter 5, verse 1, and he's giving us, he's been talking about uh, the, the warnings against the drag of worldliness uh, and, and how, you know, that's, that's affecting our life, and now he's, he's, he's changing that again, talk, still talking about the drag of worldliness, but he's talking about the danger of wealth against our soul. And how these, these things in our life uh, can cause uh, conflicts that are harmful to the growth of faith. He talks about the worldly systems uh, that are, are at enmity with God. So James is, is, is approaching this topic. He's talking about it, it's money trouble. <laughs> but he, he approaches this thing with passion. Now, James, when, when Jesus first was beginning his ministry, and he's, he's, he's living with, with his family, his brothers. He's growing up. Uh, James was one of his half-brothers who wasn't, wasn't an early adopter. He, he, he wasn't so sure that this, this Jesus was who he said he was, but something happened after the, the death of Christ and his burial and the resurrection. Of course, what really happened was that Christ arose, and when James saw that, it changed his life. It changed his life. And now, James is holding nothing back. He, he's totally committed. He believes. 
He has seen, and he's heard the story. He's heard the teaching of Jesus. He knows the Old Testament. He's heard the teaching of Jesus, and he's just, it's all been authentic. Uh, you know, it's, it's all been authentic to him now because of the resurrection of Christ. He's go, whew, I am all in. And so when he comes to talk about stuff, he ain't messing around. He's not a guy who says, listen, give, you know, take it or leave it. He's saying, this is God's, this is the truth of this whole thing. And, and so he's really laying it out there. Um, now, I, I, James gives us some warnings about wealth. Let me just start here, though. Before we dive into it, I want to make this clear. Wealth is not the problem. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the root of all evil is money. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say the root of all evil is money. What the Bible says is the root of all evil is the you know your Bible, is the love of money. And that's a big difference. Listen to Proverbs 10. The blessing of the Lord makes a person rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. That talks about the goodness of God and the blessing of God in our life, that the, the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich, that God wants to pour blessings into our lives. Wealth is a blessing from God, something to be, we need to be thankful for. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Begins to talk about why God blesses us. We'll talk a bit more about that, not only to meet the needs of, of an immediate family, but to meet the needs of people outside of your family. Wealth comes from God. Hear me. You can be wealthy and godly at the same time. Isn't that good news? Say, Lord, I receive that. Right? Wealthy and godly at the same time. So just keep that in mind as we go through these six verses here in James 5. But also learn from James' warning, warnings here about wealth. He comes with great passion, a prophetic tone. He goes, basically, look, he says, uh, listen, now listen. He, he identifies the target audience. Listen, you rich people. And so now some of us are going, oh, good. He's going to give us a bunch of warnings about rich people, and I don't have to listen to this part. That's not me because I'm not wealthy. Most of us don't think of ourselves as wealthy, especially when we compare ourselves to the people like you know, Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. We said, they're wealthy. We're not wealthy, right? But rich is a relative term, isn't it? It's a relative term. The pursuit um, of, of all of this is, is, is huge because when, when you think about this, Gallup's poll, um, one-third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. One-third. One-third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. So in those terms, all of us sitting in this room would be wealthy. Um, there's one-third of the world's population less than two, $2 a day. In ancient Israel, there were some really rich people at the top, a whole lot of poor people at the bottom, and those with money often mistreated those who lived on the margins. Let me give you a one-sentence summary of, of a message today. How I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health. How I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health. Here's this passion. And by the way, when, when James comes at this, it's a lot of passion. You, how many of you watched the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl. I had somebody tell me, oh, I didn't watch it. I'm not that interested in basketball. <laughs> um, one of the things, you know, an amazing game, um, a repeat, Kansas City Chiefs, repeat. And, um, you know, re repeat champions. It goes into overtime, all that, all that excitement. One of the things that people are talking about is that incident in the first half when um, Travis Kelsey, in, in, a, in a moment of, of passion, um, like chest bumps coach Andy Reid. And 
um, you know, he wants in the game. Something happened, <clears throat> not good on the field. He maybe thought he could do better. He wanted in the game. Um, and all of his passion. I'm, I know that there's been a lot said about that. But, folks, i got to tell you this. I love me some passion. Passivity is a non-starter. I would much rather take a strong, a person with strong passion and bridle it toward effective responses any day than try to motivate a non-starter. Now, it may not be you. You might get a hoot out of that, but not me. Um, I, in fact, I don't lead those people well, and those people don't like me well, right? Because, it, I, I, so I loved his passion. Um, it was misplaced. It was, you know, whatever. But somebody else can analyze that. But I want you to see that is the passion at which James writes this letter. James 5, notice verse 1. Now listen. Listen. And, and you'll notice that in chapter 4, verse 13, he used that same phrase, you know, earlier. He said, listen, listen, listen you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Let's talk about faith and finances. Now, some say he's addressing the worldly rich here. Others say, no, he's addressing, he's talking to Christians who are in the church who are, are rich. Well, in either case, he says, look here, listen up. He challenged the people with their faith in finances. How is your faith playing itself out in your finances? He's rebuking people for their lack of faith in dealing with finances. In fact, he calls what they're doing as worldliness. He's already said that worldliness with the world is enmity with God. He's told them that making plans apart from the word, word and will of God it, it was worldliness. Now he challenges them. He goes, by the way, if you thought just making plans, you know, we, you talked about that last Sunday, this whole idea of, of what is God's will for my life. Making plans outside the will and word of God, he said, is worldliness. He said, not, not only that, he said, what you do with your finances outside of the will and word of God is also worldliness. So he says, you need to make some plans. In the same way that he challenged the business people there in chapter 4, saying, listen, you better pay attention. Stop what you're doing. Something has to change here. He says, in, in, in faith, you have to be responsible to work out your finances. So here's some biblical, what, what, are we, what do we need to do to understand how our faith should work in finances? Here's the first thing. In order to make faith work in our finances, we need to learn some biblical stewardship principles. So I love that when he says, look, stop, listen. There's some things you need to know, some things you need to learn. I'm thinking about, it's not necessarily a, a message on, on biblical stewardship principles. Uh, we've done that at different times, um, you know, and, and taught on those. But let me just review a few of those things to get your mind moving. He's, look, listen, here's what you need to know. You need to know some biblical stewardship principles. If you're a Christian and you're going to be a good steward, you have to have some principles, such as, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's a biblical principle, yeah, to put God first. And so some of the Old Testament biblical principles carried over to the new, the idea of first fruits, uh, putting God first, first fruits, offerings, tithes, gifts. Um, here's another biblical principle. Refuse to be fearful because God will provide. So um, you know, th those, are, those are principles that God has given to us. Uh, here's a principle from Psalm 50. God owns it all. When I begin to understand that, it helps me to, to, to put my, my faith in action when it comes to finances. Psalm 50 says this, for all the animals of the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills too, by the way. I know every bird on the mountain and all the animals of the field are mine, he says. 
Here's something else. Work as unto the Lord. When it comes to finances, um, we, we know from beginning that, that in order to, because of the fall, we live in a world where um, by the sweat of your brow and the toil of your hand, you, you, you make a living. Work is unto the Lord. Uh, we know something else about uh, a stewardship principle, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Listen up, he said. Those are things. So in that first verse, what, listen what? It's some biblical uh, biblical stewardship principles. He's, he's, there's, there's teaching. There's things they know. But folks, we have to listen to those things. Now notice what else he says. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. You have to live. Here's the second thing. You have to live with the right perspective of divine judgment. Now apparently there were some wealthy farmers with a booming business that were abusing the workers by, by not paying them fairly. And their, their ungodly works <laughs> proved that money was their master, God was not. And James basically looks at him and says, listen here, you cheapskates, God is going to get you. <laughs> there's a time when there's an issue with our finances. Not only do we have to have biblical stewardship principles, but we have to understand you have to have a right perspective of divine judgment. We are responsible in how we, um, how we um, act as stewards toward finances someday is going to be examined. The Lord is going to judge us on that. It's not hard to find picture, uh, pictures in Scripture uh, that point to the fact that one can, can be kept from salvation because of the love of money. Now, one example of, is the rich, young, the rich young man. He, he went away sad because he loved money more than he loved God. We see the picture of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus has been poor. The rich man has lived for himself um, at, at the end of their lives, Lazarus is in, in, in heaven and, and the, the rich man is in hell. And what is amazing is the man who, who would never serve, you know, the rich man who would never serve the poor man Lazarus now is asking the poor man to serve him. Just dip the tip of your finger in water and cool my tongue. We have the parable of the talents. You wicked, lazy servant, the one who did nothing with what God gave to him. Uh, it was taken, the master took it from him, gave it to the one um, the, who had the most talents, and he said, you know, away with you. There's a direct connection with how people use wealth in terms of how they will be judged. I, I need to tell you that. So it's like if, if there's, a, if there's a, a professor that you have before a class, say, listen, here's what we're going to study. Here's what you're going to be tested on. I always wanted to know that. One of the things that was, um, that, that made in an education process that made a difference in, in, in my grade was I was a prolific note taker. In fact, people would come try and get my notes after class. Um, if somebody missed a class, professor would say, hey, go you know, check with Miller. He's probably you know, written down these notes. I was a prolific note taker. I wanted to know, and then I would highlight. When they talked about what's going to be on that test, I wanted to know. Folks, I'm telling you, at the end of your life, even, but now, hold it, 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 there's a test going on now. Do you know that we're in the middle of this thing? Um, God is, is doling out financial blessing on people's lives many times to the extent that they can handle it. And so it matters how we respond with our finances. And the second part is that at the end of our lives, we will be tested on this. You need to know that how you, how you steward the resources that God has entrusted you, you're going to be called to give an account for that. So, that is important to know. Um, watch this, Romans chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. It says, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and uh, immortality that God offers the salvation. You, you seek God. He saves you, okay? But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves and refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. Now, here's something else we need to know when it comes to dealing with our, putting our faith into action and faithfulness in, in our finances is we need to prioritize wealth in heaven over wealth on earth. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You don't want it to rot. You don't want it to rust. You don't want it 
to be robbed. Matthew 6, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them, rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, where thieves do not break and steal. Wherever your treasure is, their desire of your heart will also be. The root of all evil is the love of money. Do you see what he says in, in James? He said, your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. I don't know, maybe he was listening to Jesus the same time Matthew was. They kind of got that same thing going there, don't they? Notice what else he says. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Here's something else to put your faith um, in, in action in your finances. You have to avoid hoarding wealth and live modestly. Hoarding one's possessions, food, clothing, money, it's foolish. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. By the way, I don't know how many how this has happened to you. Um, it's probably a curse of the big box stores. But I remember this happened to us not long ago. Um, and, and the story is, uh, you know, oftentimes at church on a, on a weekday, uh, people bring their lunch and we stand around the counter uh, and, and we talk and fellowship and have lunch and it's already good. And one day, um, Pastor Caleb showed up with some kind of green salsa from Costco. I mean, it was the bomb. You could put it on anything. I mean, it was just fantastic. And so, where'd you get that? Costco. So guess what? The next time we went to Costco, I was not running out of this green salsa. And so, um, you know, it, it comes in, in a bottle, and, but not one bottle at Costco, it's two. And they're not small bottles, they're big bottles. And I'm thinking to myself, it was really good. I bought four bottles. So two, two containers of two bottles. And I took that home and I was so happy. And I'm telling you, that first bottle, I, I was sharing with everybody in the house, everybody's putting on everything. I mean, eggs, tacos, you know, pizza, cake. It was, put it on there. It was good. And then we got tired of it. And I had three bottles to go. And so it went down the shelf. We got a shelf down in the basement. There's some other stuff down there. And uh, forgot about it. Guess what? You hoard that stuff long enough, it's green. It's green, but it ain't good. Right? He said, you're going you're gonna to store this stuff up. You're going to hoard it. He goes, that, that, that's not the way to go. Um, he said, so avoid hoarding wealth. Live modestly. Proverbs, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will spout rings and fly away like eagles. Take a dollar bill out of your pocket. There's an eagle on that thing. Poof. If we're going to faithfully steward God's wealth, you have to understand why, it gives it, why God gives it to us. We've already mentioned it a little bit. God gives us wealth, one, so that you can care for your family. Timothy, if someone does not provide for his own, especially his own family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are powerful words. A benevolent person leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren. God gives us wealth to meet our needs and that of our family. Notice what else? He gives us wealth to meet the needs of others. So listen, everything I get, just like not every thought that is in my brain should come out of my mouth, not every dollar that I earn should be spent on me. So he gives us wealth to meet the needs of others. Proverbs 19, the one who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord. Are you kidding me? The person who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord. Uh, you, you bless those who don't have something you have. You bless them, and you're, you're lending to the Lord. And the Lord will repay him for his good deed. 1 John 3.17, but whoever has the world's possession and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? So he gives us wealth to meet our needs, that of our family. He gives us uh, wealth to meet the needs of others. He also gives us wealth to use for ministry, for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom. I've often, I've often thought of it this way, that God will trust me with the wealth that he knows I will steward well. 
And, and, and what can he trust me with? And part of that is, what do you use for ministry? Luke 16, 9, Christ said, I tell you, you make friends for yourself by how you use worldly wealth. So when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the eternal home. So here, here's, here's how you can look at that. Christ taught that believers should prudently use their wealth to advance the cause of Christ. So you give generously, and when you get to heaven, there are going to be people who come to know Christ through your giving, and they're going to recognize you, and, and they're going to welcome you into your eternal dwelling. So how, how are they going to figure all that out? In heaven, there are going to be lots of stuff figured out you don't know now. But you've been faithful and you served, and you gave, and then all of a sudden, you know, on, on earth, the earthly economy is now done. Everything that we have left is the heavenly economy, which, by the way, is an eternal thing. And you roll into heaven someday, and, you know, you scuff your feet on the golden curb, and someone comes up to you and says, because you gave, I heard about the gospel. So God has given us resources so that we can use to expand the kingdom. Here's something else we need to know if we're going to put our faith to, in, into action in our finances. We have to refuse to gain wealth by cheating, manipulation, and fraud. What are some dishonest practices that people commonly use to gain wealth? Notice that? It says, look, the wages, you've, you've hoarded wealth. The wages you failed to pay the workers mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the innocent ones who was not opposing you. How do people defraud others or cheat them? Well, by not paying a fair wage to an employee in order to maximize wealth. We see that all the time. Colossians, masters, treat your slaves with justice. Here's another way that people, uh, you know, by cheating and manipulating and fraud, think that they're getting ahead. It's when people lie on tax reports to minimize taxes paid and increase refunds. I think tax day's coming, right? Here's another thing. Stealing from our companies, you know, helping ourselves to little company gifts. Ah, they're not going to miss this. They don't really need that. Here's one, abusing employees, our employers' time by not putting in a full day's work, spending all day chatting online, playing on social media, watching movies, sleeping, whatever it is. Another one, not paying bills. Oh, no man, Romans 13, oh, no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law doesn't mean that, I mean, most, most of Americans, those living in this culture, we, we have a mortgage. We're managing those resources. We have to leverage our finances, and that's not what it's talking about. There may be some people that have a, a complete conviction about um, any kind of a, a mortgage. We're not talking about that. But once, when you have that, you have financial responsibilities uh, to care for. What, what is, I will tell you what, what I hear from many people who own property and they're renting it out. What is heartbreaking is the renters who can't afford to pay the contract that they negotiated to pay their rent, but rent-a-center is at their house more than once. I have delivered benevolence checks to people who have more stuff than I have. You know, bigger TVs, bigger cell phone plans, yada, 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 right? So that's what he's talking about there. Um, we, anybody here? Uh, abusing welfare, disability, and other government funds. Refuse to gain wealth by cheating, manipulating, and fraud. Today, many people try to take advantage of systems meant to help those who are desperately in need. They're there because people really need them. And then there's people who are playing the game. Dame Rand. Dave Ramsey says that there are 7 million able-bodied males who are unwilling to work. He calls it the wussification of America. <laughs> I think, ah, oh, it's just Dave Ramsey. You know, he's a noisy talk show host. Well, let's kind of go to the other side of, of news broadcasting. CBS News reported 
that a large number of American men are prime working age between the ages of 25 and 54, and they're not working or even looking for work, resulting in a major hole in the American economy. In 1953, 98% of men in that age range had a job or were looking for one. That number has fallen ever since. Today, 7.2 million men have essentially dropped out of the workforce. Hmm, maybe that's where Ramsey got his info. CBS also reported this, that non-working men between the ages of 25 and 54 spend their time on average seven hours each weekday dedicated to leisure time, including relaxing, playing games, watching TV, and that's according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics 2021. And by the way, data also shows that men who are not working and are not looking for work are also spending less time caring for other household members like children than men who are at work. That's a hot mess. If we're going to be faithful stewards of God's money, you can't use dishonest means to gain money or to keep money. Paul told Christians to pay their bills in Romans 13.8. Paul told Christians not to steal in Ephesians 4.28. So, Here's, here's one more thing. Don't abuse people to gain wealth. Do you see that? You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. How do you do that? Well, if you're going to put your faith into action in, in the area of finances, you can't use or abuse people. Uh, th think about slavery. Slavery is one of those things where people have been used and abused to gain wealth for someone else. I told you a couple weeks ago that that is in full bore um, slavery, the, the sex trade slavery in our country. We're busting, we're, we're busting people in um, all over the country that are, that are subject to slave, sexual slavery in our country. It ought to make us throw up, cry, and then get fiercely angry and get some action. We need, we need to demand better of our society than that. Sweatshops, those are all over the place. Stealing identities, ruining credit. Um, don't use or abuse people. There's others who try to sabotage income or access to, to money. There are people who um, in, in, in business or somehow try to manipulate things or even in families, in relationships between husbands and wives, try to secure assets, assets to their name only. keeping secrets involving finances, hiding money, souring deals to avoid payment or to manipulate payment, squeezing people into debt. How? By refusing to pay child support, by dragging out divorce proceedings to cripple someone else financially. Don't use or abuse people to gain wealth. He looks there and he says, listen, you know, the, the, these rich people, they, they had lots of money. They could, they, could, they could play the let's go to court game. Other people couldn't defend themselves. James says, listen up, folks. <laughs> that is not how to have your faith active in your finances. I'm going to ask the team to come. They're going to lead us in our last song. I say, oh, man, James kind of dropped the bomb on us here. Like, whew, some tough stuff. You see the passion in James? I, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave us there. I love this in First Timothy. I think I have it on the screen. So what are we going to do? How are we going to put our faith in action in our finances? Paul, looking at Timothy, he said this. You see, teach those who are rich in this world. So, again, let's redefine rich. There is nobody in this room, no household, that is living on less than $2 a day. One third of the world is. We're not. So in that category, so listen, I'm not, I'm not the rich rich by this world standards. Well, okay, but just some perspective. Teach those who are rich in this world, not to be proud and not to trust in their money 
which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all that we need for enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works, generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. I love Paul's advice to young Timothy. It's good advice. By doing this, we will store up treasure in heaven as a good foundation for a future. And it also helps us in this life to experience abundant life. Stories told of a man who was visited by an angel promising him to, that, that he would grant him one wish. All right, so you're going to have to work with me on this because that ain't never going to happen. That's not how it works. Is it? But think with me here. Stories told of a man who was visiting, visited by an angel, promised to grant him any wish. The man thought for a moment. He said, you know what? I would like a copy of the newspaper one year in advance of the stock market. And there was a big smile on his face because he was reading that newspaper and he realized that he was about to get very wealthy. And he was so excited about the money he was going to make because he had information of what was going to happen. He was so excited until he looked on the other page and he was reading the obituaries and he saw his picture. Wealth, it is so unreliable. Unless you use it in faith for God's glory, you can pile it up in heaven and then it's there forever. And that's good news. So Heavenly Father, we have decisions to make. We have faith to exercise. We have obedience to exercise. Thank you for the message of how to put faith into our finances and to work it out. And Lord, we realize that when it comes down to it, the truth is this. It's all about you and us. It's our hope of glory. To that end, we commit ourselves to you to be stewards with our finances. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.